how do we approach the celebration of the Mass? The Mass is easily the most identifiably Catholic thing that we do. One of my favorite scenes from cinema is any time they're showing the Mass, although sometimes Hollywood gets different parts of it wrong. But there's something about Catholic ritual, about the Catholic experience that captivates people, that enthralls people. And I think it's important to understand how do we approach it. I think that the Lord uses us, that is, our capacity as human beings, to bring us into deeper communion with himself. But again, how does he do that? Well, I think he does it through the title of this presentation, through signs and symbols. So let's unpack that a bit. What exactly does that mean? I want to begin with this quote from Sacrosanctum Concilium. This was the first document that was put out by the bishops of the word in the, fa- the bishops of the world and the fathers of the Second Vatican Council. Sacrosanctum Concilium deals specifically with the reformation of the liturgy. Now, I think a lot of times when we think about the reformation of the liturgy, we think about certain external things that we've grown accustomed to in the last 50 years, more or less, right? The celebration of Mass in the vernacular, right? The celebration of Mass facing the people, so on and so forth. But I think that the Second Vatican Council and the Sacrosanctum Concilium document actually point us to the key, if you will, to unlock our experience of the Mass. And I want to begin with paragraph 7. It says, rightly then, the liturgy is considered as an exercise of the priestly office of Jesus Christ. What does this mean? That the liturgy and everything that we do in the sanctuary is not so much our work, but it's the work of Jesus Christ. It's Christ who affects the sacrament. It's Christ who celebrates the liturgy. In the liturgy, the sanctification of man is signified by signs perceptible to the senses and is affected in a way which corresponds to each of these signs. Again, the liturgy and the sanctification of man is signified by signs perceptible to the senses. Now, what are the senses? What are the five senses, right? You know these just on a human level. Sight, taste, touch, smell, and hearing, right? The senses are something that God has built into our very DNA as human people. So it would make sense, therefore, that he uses these things to his advantage to bring us into deeper communion with him and to lead us into a deeper worship of him. And this is why everything that we do at the Mass should be oriented towards the five senses, right? Worship is not merely an intellectual exercise, although it does involve our intellect, it involves our capacities, our rational ability to think, to memorize, so on and so forth. But worship involves the entire person, even the human body. Worship affirms in a very beautiful way the fact that our bodies and everything about us has created good and everything has a capacity to lend itself to the authentic worship of God, right? But I think we have to ask ourselves now that we know that signs and symbols are important in our worship. Are all signs and symbols created equal, right? We know from our experience as Catholics that certain things pass, huh? Candles, incense, water, but, but why? Why? Why water and not soda? Why incense and not potpourri, huh? You could say, well, because the church says so. But again, why? What's the measuring stick? How do we begin to unpack these things? 
What's the standard that the church uses to make these kinds of decisions for signs and symbols that we say, yes, that's good, and let's bring it into our worship? What, what's the measuring stick again? What's the standard? I think this comes from the catechism, catechism 1145. The sacramental celebration is woven from signs and symbols, ding, ding, ding. That language is going to continue to come up as we continue our conversation tonight. But this is the most important thing. I think this is the crux of it all. In keeping with the divine pedagogy of salvation, pedagogy meaning how the faith is communicated, how the faith is taught, in keeping with how the faith is taught, their meaning, i.e. sign and symbols meaning, is rooted in works of creation and in human culture, specified by the events of the Old Testament and fully revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Again, those are the four criteria by which we begin to unpack and understand signs and symbols. I want to read that again. A sacramental celebration is woven from signs and symbols. In keeping with the divine pedagogy of salvation, their meaning is rooted in works of creation, number one, and in human culture, number two. In the events of the Old Covenant, number three, and truly revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ, number four. The Catechism identifies these four criteria to help us identify and understand and appreciate legitimate signs and symbols, right? Creation, culture, the Old Covenant or also the Old Testament, right? And also Christ. These are the four measuring sticks that help us understand signs and symbols. So when you encounter a sign or a symbol in the Christian liturgy, you should immediately go to these four criteria and take that sign and measure it against these things, right? But what do we mean by these, huh? Creation, first and foremost, refers to the things as they are in the world, right? Creation refers to properties and truths about the world around us, huh? Now, understand this, at this point, we're not talking about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ yet. We're not talking about the content of Revelation. We're not talking about the scriptures. We're just talking about the world and the way that it is, right? For example, water is wet, fire, is hot. Where there is smoke, there is oftentimes fire, right? These are just things that we know from observing nature and observing the world around us. So that's what the catechism means when it talks about creation. But how about culture, right? Culture refers to those things that we assign value to as societies or as groups of people. For example, when you come to a funeral, what color do you wear? black. That's right. Again, we're not talking about scripture. We're not talking about our Lord at this point. We're just talking about those constructs and those things that we as a society mutually agree on. And the church is saying, yes, that has import in worship. That has import in the way that we understand the liturgy. Now we talk about the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, right? Now we're talking about God and his interaction with his people, specifically in the Old Testament, which, by the way, this is why it is so essential that you be people of the scriptures. This is why it is so essential that you know the story of Israel because if you don't know the story of God's people, you cannot appreciate the signs and the symbols of the Catholic mass, right? If you don't understand the people of the story of God's dealings with his people, a lot of what goes on up here is gonna make less sense. And finally, Christ. All things are restored and find their deepest meaning in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So commit these four criteria, my friends, to memory, creation, the way the world is, what we observe in the world, culture, those things that we mutually agree on that have meaning, the Old Testament, the story of Israel and God's people, 
but most importantly, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's these criteria that will help you unpack your experience of the Mass. Now, it's possible that you're still not convinced that God would use signs and symbols to his advantage, right? But think about this. Our society uses signs and symbols to their advantage all the time. So why not God? Why wouldn't God use the capacities he built within us to lead us into deeper communion with himself? Signs and symbols, again, my friends, they have power. They have deep meaning. Imagine you're driving down the highway and you see golden arches. That might have a real effect on you, depending on the time of the day, depending on if you're hungry. It might even elicit a physical response in you. Maybe your stomach will start to growl. Maybe your mouth will start to water. Maybe you'll be reminded just how much you really like Big Macs. (laughs) Signs have power. Those golden arches are in of themselves not the 10-piece nugget that you hope to enjoy, but it's pointing to it, right? Well, similarly, you encounter things in the Catholic liturgy that's pointing to something beyond themselves. Or think about that check mark, right? If you see that check mark, there's a phrase that might come to your mind. What is it? Just do it, right? Signs and symbols have power. Signs and symbols have import, right? Or even just think about the smell of coffee. You go into your workplace environment, or maybe you're at home and you wake up and your beloved has started to brew a fresh pot, right? I woke up this morning and Father Alessandro had some coffee going on the stovetop, huh? Well, that smell and that experience and that sensation, it's not the coffee itself, but something was already happening to me interiorly, right? Now, I end up getting a cup of coffee a little bit later, but again, these signs and these symbols have meaning. They have import, right? So if our world and our society can make use of these things, why not our God? Why not our God? All right. So I want to move our conversation right now, and I want to consider specifically some things that we encounter in our churches that we can unpack using the criteria that the church gives us to understand signs and symbols. And I want to begin with a conversation about the sanctuary. Now, I could have talked about a thousand different things that we encounter in the Catholic Mass, right? But I want to begin in the sanctuary. And we're turn, excuse me. And to do this, we're going to turn our attention to two documents. The first one is a document called Built of Living Stones. It's a document from the U.S. bishops that you can get online that guides the construction and remodeling of churches throughout the country. It's a very good document, and we'll unpack some of it. Another document is called Sacramentum Caritatis. This was Pope Benedict XVI post-apostolic exhortation following the Synod on the Eucharist that happened in the 2000s. So again, my friends, let's spend some time in talking about the sanctuary, and let's even evaluate your beautiful sanctuary here at St. Benedict's Church. What makes up a sanctuary? Well, Built of Living Stones, that documents from the U.S. Bishop says this. The sanctuary is a space where the altar and the ambos stand and where the priest, deacon, and other ministers exercise their offices. The special character of the sanctuary is emphasized and enhanced by the distinctness of its design and furnishings or by its elevation. We know from this first quote that the sanctuary is a space complete with the altar and the ambo. And the sanctuary is also a place that's usually set apart by its design or its elevation. I think we're checking all those things here at St. Benedict's, huh? What else does this document say? 
The principal ritual furnishings within the sanctuary are the altar on which the Eucharistic sacrifice is offered, the ambo from which God's word is proclaimed, and the chair of the priest celebrant. These furnishings should be constructed of substantial materials that express dignity and stability. Their placement and their design again make it clear that although they are distinct entities, they are related to the one Eucharistic celebration. So now we've expanded our definition of the sanctuary. We have an altar. We have an ambo. But another essential piece of furniture? The chair. Not accidental. So let's also turn to this document from Pope Benedict XVI. The correct positioning of the tabernacle contributes to the recognition of Christ's presence in the Blessed Sacrament. Therefore, the place where the Eucharistic species are reserved, marked by a sanctuary lamp, should be readily visible to anyone entering the church. In new churches, it is good to position the Blessed Sacrament Chapel close to the sanctuary. Where this is not possible, it is preferable to locate the tabernacle in the sanctuary in a sufficiently elevated place at the center of the apse or in another place where it is equally conspicuous. And so with Pope Benedict XVI, we now have something else that makes the list and makes the cut for a sanctuary, the tabernacle. The essential furnishings and things you need for a sanctuary to be a sanctuary are a space designated by decoration or elevation that include an altar, an ambo, a chair, and the tabernacle. This is the sanctuary. This is what the church understands as a sanctuary. So let's take these four essential pieces of sanctuary furniture and let's try to unpack them, the signs and the symbols associated with them using the criteria that the church has given us, right? Let's start with the altar. This first quote comes from Built of Living Stones. Since the church teaches that the altar is Christ, Its composition should reflect the nobility, beauty, strength, and simplicity of the one it represents. Ordinarily, it should be fixed with the base affixed to the floor and with the table or mensa made of natural stone, since it represents Christ Jesus, the living stone. The pedestal support for the table may be fashioned from any sort of material as long as it's becoming and solid. So in the very first line, we have one of the criteria that the catechism gives us to evaluate signs and symbols mentioned, right? That the altar is representative of who? Christ. That's right. This fact dictates how we construct altars. They should be noble. They should have a quality of strength about them. They should be simple. The mensa, the tabletop should ideally be stone, right? Because Christ is the what? that's been rejected. The stone that's been rejected is now the cornerstone, right? It should be becoming and solid. Stone tells us that the altar is a solid, permanent fixture, just like Christ is solid and permanent in our experience of the faith. The altar should be something unmovable. Here's an interesting thing. Do you know how an altar is blessed? Has anybody here ever seen an altar blessed? Maybe in the new church, it's a beautiful thing. Let's look at how an altar is blessed. This is from the order of the dedication of an altar. When the invocation over the water is concluded, the bishop accompanied by deacons passes through the main body of the church, sprinkling the people with holy water, and then he sprinkles the altar. All right? Secondly, the bishop removing the chasuble pours a sacred chrism on the middle of the altar and on each of the four corners, right? So he usually gets the huge bottle of chrism oil, the oil that smells good, and he just slathers it on top of the altar, right? And getting the four corners specifically, huh? And then the faithful bring the bread and the wine and the water for the celebrations of the Lord's sacrifice, huh? 
It's interesting. Think about this. This altar was initiated into the life of the church with three things. Water, chrism, and bread and wine. Hmm. What else, or better yet, who else is initiated into the life of the church with water, chrism, and bread and wine? You are. You are. You're initiated with water through the sacrament of baptism. You receive the Holy Spirit and continue that initiation through the sacrament of confirmation. But the culmination, the high point of your initiation as someone who is a believer in Christ Jesus our Lord is the Eucharist. The altar is initiating to the life of the church as if it was a real person. But it is representative of a person, right? Christ. Christ. We do very weird things with our altars too, by the way. Have you noticed that when the priest comes in and when he exits, what's his gesture towards the altar? He kisses it. Why does he kiss it? Because it's Christ. We reverence Christ in our midst, represented by the altar. You know what else is also weird about altars? We like to dress it. Why don't we just have an old table out? Why do we put all these cloths and ornamentation on it? Well, because you don't leave people naked. <laughs> you dress them to demonstrate their dignity. But of course, if the altar is representative of Christ, it's only appropriate that we dress him, but not just dress him with any old clothes, but we dress him with the very best our parish community has to offer. We're admitting so much about the altar and most people might just come in here and be very indifferent to everything that's happening with it. But there's so much going on just with the altar, right? So much going on. And by, by the way, my friends, that's just one criteria. Christ. What does the structure mean for us as human people? Think about your experience as human, as, as human people and your experience with altars or even, let's say, tables as human culture. What do you do at a table? You eat, right? It's a place of nourishment, right? It's a place in which you receive sustenance, huh? That experience of a table is gonna to contribute to your understanding of an altar, huh? But think about the Old Testament too, right? Anytime a significant event happened in the lives of the Old Testament, in the lives of the people of the Old Testament, what did they do? They would build a altar. We had yesterday in daily mass, we had a reading from judges where one of the judges had a significant thing happen to him and the first thing he did was he built an altar. People in the Old Testament were constantly building altars. Altars were their favorite things to build. We know that in the temple in Jerusalem though, the altar that was there had particular significance because it was an altar of sacrifice and where appropriate things were offered to God on high. Altars are everywhere but they have import for us in terms of creation, human culture, the Old Testament, and Christ. So we can look at our experience of the altar and check it off as legitimate. This is a legitimate sign in Catholic worship. It's a legitimate symbol in that it points to something else. Let's talk about the ambo. This comes from the Book of Blessings, which is a text that we use to bless things, and this is what it says. 
This is the opening introductory paragraph. Brothers and sisters, we have come together to bless this lectern and to begin its sacred use, namely as a symbol, ding, 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 to all of us at the table of God's word that provides the first and necessary nourishment for the Christian life. It refers to the ambo as a table. And again, my friends, what do we know about tables? We talked about this with the altar. It's a place where we are nourished. Again, touching on that criteria of human culture, huh? Where do we see lecterns or ambos in the Old Testament? Well, I would point to Nehemiah 8, 2 through 4, 5 through 6, and 8 through 10. This is the first reading for the third Sunday of Ordinary Time, or also now called the Sunday of the Word of God. This is what it says. Again, a reading from the book of Nehemiah. Accordingly, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could hear with understanding. This was the first day of the seventh month. He read, it from, he, read, he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. The scribe Ezra stood on the wooden platform that had been made for this purpose. He opened the book in the sight of all the peoples, for he was standing above all people. And when he opened it, the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. Then they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So they read from the book, from the law of God, with interpretation. They gave the sense so that the people could understand the reading. And Nehemiah, who was governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to them, This day is holy to the Lord God. Do not weep or mourn. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat and fast. Eat the fat and drink sweets and wine and send portions of them to, whom have, to, who, to those who have nothing prepared. For this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. This reading, this experience from Nehemiah is when the law of the Lord had been found in the temple for the first time in a very long time. And they construct this wooden platform and the priest goes up to the, to the lectern or to the wooden platform and he proclaims God's word and has such an experience on God's people that they're moved to tears. And that experience is marked by rejoicing and feasting and partying, if you will. From John Bergsma, who's a scripture theologian, he says this, the public reading of the law recorded here in Nehemiah with a wooden pulpit built for the purpose is oftentimes regarded as a historical beginning of the liturgy of the word and Judaism and Christianity. So again, it's a table. It has import for us as human people. We look at the experience of the Old Testament specifically through Nehemiah, but how about Christ? Jesus, who brings all things together, what do we say about Jesus and the Word? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. First chapter of St. John's Gospel. The Word is not simply the dead Word on a page, but the Word is an experience with our living Redeemer. That's the Word that at the end of the day is being communicated to us, the experience of salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. You see what we're doing here, my friends? We've already looked at the altar. We've looked at the ambo. We've taken this criteria that the church has given us and it's drawn us into a deeper understanding of these two pieces of furniture that again, people might waltz into Sunday in and Sunday out and not really appreciate. Couple more. 
look at the presider's chair. The chair of the pre-celebrant stands as a symbol of his office of presiding over the assembly and of directing prayer. This is again from Built to Living Stones, the USCCB's document that tells us about signs and symbols and the furnishings in the church, right? So we know culturally, let's go back to human culture, right? King Charles ascended the British throne. But it's interesting that we associate his power with the piece of furniture that he sits on, but it's not, of course, just a piece of furniture. The throne that King Charles sat on when he was coronated has deep significance for the English people because isn't it the throne of Edward, I believe? Maybe even older than that? But the throne is synonymous with his power and with the crown. That's, we just know that through human culture, right? Maybe when you were young, there was a chair at your dinner table that was reserved for one person who was particularly special in the family. Who was that? Your father, right? Dad had a hard day's work and he would come home and he, all, he only wanted to do one thing at the end of the day, have dinner, but you better believe that no kid sat in his spot. That was his spot. That was the experience in my household. Dad sat at the head of the table. Chairs have significance in our lives as people, right? But how about just creation, huh? We as human beings get tired of standing. We weren't made to stand 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right? When we've worked a hard day's work again, we just want to do what? We just want to sit. We just want to relax because sitting and the posture of sitting is, re is, is regenerative, uh, regenerative, it's healing, huh? What does the church tell us about the office of presiding? From the ordination of a bishop, all rise. If the ordination of the bishop has taken place in the newly bishop's own church, that is the cathedral, the principal ordaining bishop invites him to be seated in the cathedra. If you go to the cathedral here in Tulsa, there's a chair that only one behind sits in and one behind only, the bishop. And that chair we call a cathedra. And the name of the entire building takes its sign, takes its significance rather from that chair. In the cathedral is the bishop's cathedra. That chair has significance and has import because it's from that place symbolically where the bishop presides over his diocese. But I think all chairs in all of our parishes are related to the ministry of the bishop. So from Presbyterium Ordinis, which is a document from the Second Vatican Council that deals with priestly ministry, exercising the office of Christ, the shepherd and head, and according to their share in his authority, priests in the name of the bishop gather the family of God together as a brotherhood enlivened by one spirit. Through Christ, they lead them, into the Holy, they lead them in the Holy Spirit to God the Father. Again, exercising the office of Christ, the shepherd and head, and according to their share in his authority, priests in the name of the bishop gather the family of God together. My ministry as a priest, my friends, only makes sense in light of the ministry of my bishop back home in West Texas. In a sense, the chair that our parishes have only makes sense in light of the chair that's in the cathedral, the cathedra. How about the criteria of Christ? How does Christ help us understand this chair? Well, where is Christ at? Right now, where's he at? the tabernacle, he's at the right hand of the Father, right? And what is he doing at the right hand of the Father? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And I don't think he's sitting on any stool. He's sitting on a magnificent throne because he's the king. 
and he reigns over all creation in kingly glory from his throne. Christ even has a chair in heaven. We have to assume that if he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Let's take the one last furnishing that makes the sanctuary. Again, from the book of blessings, and I think this is particularly beautiful, the tabernacle. The tabernacle for Eucharistic reservation is a reminder of Christ's presence that comes about in the sacrifice of the mass, but it is also a reminder of the brothers and sisters we must cherish in charity. Since it was in fulfillment of the sacramental ministry received from Christ that the church first began to reserve the Eucharist for the sake of who? For the sake of the sick and the dying. And our church's adoration has always been offered to the reserved sacrament, the bread which comes down from heaven. Language of reminder could be replaced with is a sign of, right? The tabernacle is a sign of Christ's presence that comes about through the sacrifice of the mass. The tabernacle should absolutely remind us of the sacramental presence of Christ because it's the container, it's the box, it's the home of the living Christ, right? But it should also remind us when we look at it according to the church of our obligations to the sick and to the homebound and our obligations to those who can't be with us day in and day out. The reservation of the Blessed Sacrament in our churches grew out of a pastoral motivation, huh? Because we didn't reserve the Blessed Sacrament until about the 11th or 12th century in our tradition. But that came about through a pastoral need, and the pastoral need was getting communion to those who could not join us on Sundays. What's the Old Testament prefiguration of the tabernacle? I would point to Exodus 37. The ark was made of Acadia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. It was overlaid with pure gold, both inside and out, and made a gold molding around it. It had four gold rings that were used to fasten them to the four feet, with two rings on one side and two rings on the other side. Then were made poles of wood that overlaid them with gold, and he inserted the poles into the rings of the sides of the ark to carry it. He made the atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and two and a half cubits wide. He then made two cherubim, angels, out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. He made one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. He made them one piece with one cover. The cherubim had their wings spread upon it, upward, overshadowing the cover, and it covered them. The cherubim faced each other, looking towards the cover. Of course, this is a description of the construction of what? The Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. The Ark of the Covenant was thought to be the very place from which God presided over his people Israel. Even in the temple, my friends, in the inner Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And it was from that place that the very presence of God dwelt among men. But do you see the similarities with our tabernacle? Constructed of pure gold cherubim adorning and inside of course dwelling what the real presence of Christ do our tabernacles admit the same thing I think so I think so from built of living stones the tabernacle should be worthy of the blessed sacrament beautifully designed and in harmony with the overall decor of the rest of the church to provide for the security of the Blessed Sacrament, the tabernacle should be solid, immovable, opaque, and locked. Locked. As a human culture, what do we usually lock away? 
precious things, right? We lock away those things that are valuable. So why should the tabernacle be solid and immovable and locked, huh? Because there's something precious on the inside, namely Christ Jesus our Lord. Think about the criteria of creation, the way that things are. What does things being solid and immovable and opaque tell us? That they're permanent. These things usually aren't going anywhere. They're usually heavy, right? Why is it important that those things be demonstrated by our tabernacles? Again, let's go back to that quote from Pope Benedict. The the correct position of the tabernacle contributes to the recognition of God's presence in the Blessed Sacrament. Therefore, the place where the Eucharistic species is reserved should be marked by a sanctuary lamp and it should be readily visible to everyone entering in the church. Why is it important that the tabernacle be seen by everyone when it comes into the church? Why is that important? Think about the criteria. I go back to in the person of Christ in the New Testament. You are a light of a world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bushel basket. Instead, they set it on a stand and gives light to everyone in the house. I love that association of a city set on a hill, a light on a stand, and our tabernacles in a place where everyone can see it. Because, of course, a tabernacle is a place where we get our light, our spiritual light, right? Again, that's Matthew 5, 14 through 16. So, my friends, what we've done tonight is we've taken four pieces of what just seems like furniture, and we've unpacked it using the criteria that the church has given us, the criteria of creation, human culture, the Old Testament, and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Catechism, paragraph 1145. So what else can you begin to unpack with the four criteria given to us by the catechism? Maybe candles? Maybe incense? Maybe vestments? Maybe the bell tower outside? Bells are really fun. Have fun with that one. Unpack bells with the four criteria. Soon, Fathers Brian and Alessandro are going to begin to teach you about the different parts of the Mass and their meaning. How can we unpack the words and the gestures of the Mass so that they have a deeper meaning for us? Well, I would posit that we use the four criteria that the Catechism has given us. I think that understanding the gestures, words, signs, and symbols of the Mass can contribute to our own sense of reverence that we talked about on the first night, and thus it contributes to our divinization, our becoming perfect in Christ Jesus. That's why this stuff matters. So my friends, I want to end with that. And I want to thank you for your hospitality to me this week, especially for giving me the opportunity to meditate with you on the experience of the Mass and the Eucharist. I want to thank Father Brian and Father Alessandro for their hospitality. My brothers, thank you so much for the invitation to be here. It's been a joy. This is a very special parish. I want to thank the beautiful parish of St. Benedict's for your own hospitality. I want to thank those who spent time with the Lord for the success of this parish mission. I certainly felt your prayers. Your prayers sustained me in a very special way this week, and I'm so thankful. And my friends, be assured of my continued prayers for you, and I ask that you please continue to keep me in your prayers, and especially in my work with my seminarians back in West Texas. Thanks, everyone.